Well, where do you get started? I have just looked forward to this Sunday and looked forward to the opportunity to be here for so many weeks. And, you know, there are a lot of events in our life that we look forward to. And uh, this is one of the highlights that I've looked forward to for ever since I knew I was coming here for just, what, last couple of months. And I am just delighted to be here this morning. I kind of feel like I'm in a, one of these little time warp situations. I drove up on the property and looked at the property yesterday. I could hardly believe it. And uh, Brother Dennis, Brother Tim have done everything they could to make my visit as comfortable, but they did not prepare me for the shock of seeing the development that has happened. But then I began to think, man, I left here 30 years ago. 30 years is a long time. Can I get an amen on that one? <laughs> it is a long time. It really is, and it's just amazing. I'm going to take just about a couple minutes, if it's all right, to tell you that in December of 1978, June and I flew to your town for the first time. We met on Broadmoor over there in the home of Leonard Neal with three families. So it was eight of us sitting together. And that's sort of where this church was born. And uh, we left and went back to Columbia, South Carolina, and came back the last Sunday of, of January. And two of my children had never seen snow. We didn't have enough sense to know that when you rented a house, you ought to have a basement in a house here in Michigan. We didn't know that. So we rented a house over there, and it had concrete on the floor. And, you know, how do you keep a house like that warm? When we came in, we had the blizzard of 79. I know you don't remember that. Some of you weren't even around then. How do you remember that time? And, man, we moved in. You couldn't see our front door. We couldn't dig it out until spring. And we went in, and we got so cold at night, we built a fire in the fireplace. We'd put blankets and sleep together on the floor and just enjoyed it. And we met for the first time. 32 people met the last Sunday in January, in a place called Dutton Elementary School. Anybody here for that service? Hold your hand up. How many folks here for that? Hold it up. Let me see where you are for just a minute. I don't want to be lonesome. Well, only a couple of us here. <laughs> then we stayed down there for a while, and <clears throat> God just miraculously moved. There was about, uh, we had $1,500 in the bank. 32 people just getting started, you know. $1,500 in the bank and 36 acres became available on this corner, a one-quarter-mile square of land, starting up to the corner up there, Kalamazoo and 60th, quarter-mile this way, that way, and cost $160,000. Now, how does 32 people with $1,500 in the bank buy that? But the people were here. We prayed about it. We sent $1,000 to Miami and signed a contract on this property. The only problem is three months later, we needed $40,000. And... Uh, the first Sunday of March, the second Sunday of March, we had kind of what we call a give it all Sunday or go broke or something, I don't know. And God gave us $45,000 in an offering. And we made the down payment on this property. And there was a land contract on it. We had, it was a farmhouse. If I remember the farmhouse down here, we had to give a life contract and take care of the mother of the lady that we purchased the land from. And I was sitting down in Starbucks yesterday, one of my favorite hangouts. And I was thinking about my boys used to cut grass down here to take care of that lady. <laughs> and uh, that was kind of a time warp, it really was. And then things began to accelerate. And uh, We did in August of that year, church was seven months old, we did a capital campaign and raised $342,000 in cash and commitments, seven months old. And uh, from that, we began to build this building. How many remember the building of this building? And we moved in here spring when the church was three, three years old. We moved in here. 
We probably shouldn't have, but we did. We overfilled the building. We had to get somebody. The frost had just, I didn't know much about this frost line and this kind of thing. And the ground was frozen. It was no problem. But the Sunday before we moved in, it thawed out. And you know what happened then? We had to get records to pull the cars out out here, but nobody complained. It was great. And a lot of good things happened. And I was here until 1984, and God led me into evangelism. And it was a high and a low in my life. And it's just been amazing to see what God's done. Amazing to see what God's done through you. And I want to just thank you. This church has supported our ministry monthly for the last almost 30 years. It'll be 30 years in June. And uh, God has blessed us, most of you. How many of you were here on that first Sunday we moved in this building? How many of you were here? Hold your hand up and wave at me just a minute. All right. That looked like about 15 or 20 of us. A lot of people have died. Some people have just chosen to <laughs> go other directions. Remember, Brother Dan, we started the, the soul winning training. We used to tell the men in soul winning, you can't die, we won't bury you. And if you get sick, we won't visit you in the hospital because for two years, you can't do anything but work. That's all we do. And at first, Brother Tim, the first um, two and a half years, we trained 192 soul winners. And God blessed and things began to happen and it just went in a wonderful way. And so the history and what God's done... The only problem is I had a major mistake. Somebody asked me in the hall, several people, what can we pray with you about? Well, I had one major problem in my life. I went to get a haircut. The girl made a mistake down the middle. I see some of you have had that same problem. But I enjoyed it so much, I just kept it that way. Amen? <laughs> so it's just been a blessing. But it's just a joy to be back. It's a joy to be here this morning. It's a joy to be with you. How many have your Bible? Hold your Bible up good night. How many folks have a Bible? See, but how many have an electronic Bible? You can hold it up with these. Come on, don't let it down. It's not too heavy. If you've got an electronic one, you can hold that up too. Good. Turn your Bible to the Gospel of Mark. Would you do that with me? The Gospel of Mark. And I want to read a couple of verses with you in just a minute and share a couple of thoughts. And I trust this is exactly what God wants us to have for the day. While you're turning, we're going to look at Mark chapter 5. While you're turning to Mark chapter 5, tonight at 6 o'clock, I want you to do the very best you can to be here. And I want you to bring other people with you if you can. What we're going to deal is a very practical thing on witnessing how to lead people to Christ, the basis of it, the entire. We're going to cover a little bit more on that. I'll be using a PowerPoint. I'll be giving the same thing. In 1999, we started an international division of the ministry called the Witness Project. The word witness means worldwide intensified training of nationals for evangelism and scriptural soul winning. Our desire was to reach the 50% of the world that has never heard of Jesus Christ even one time. And we said we're going to work at it as hard as we can. And started out in the Philippines. That's where it was born, in Manila. And while we gave birth to that in 99, God has blessed it. And I'm telling you this because you help every month in this. We are now working in 69 different countries and states and provinces in some 39 different languages. All the sewing material, all of everything has been translated into those languages. We have trained over 40,000 national pastors in soul winning and church planning. We had over 11,000 churches that have been planted, home churches, a lot of them, in areas where people have never heard of Christ before. And it's just amazing to see what's happening. Tonight, you need to be here at 6 o'clock. I'm going to give everybody a syllabus when you walk in. You'll want to bring a pencil and a piece of paper. You'll laugh a little bit. God will touch your heart a little bit. I'm going to give you a lot of things. And so tonight, you need to be here at 6. If you've never won a soul to Christ, you need to be here. If you won 100 to Christ in the last week, you still need to be here. 
We need to work at this thing and understand what the Bible really teaches about the need of our world. You, as an American citizen, understand you have a dual citizenship. Your dual citizenship means you're a citizen of heaven, and we have a grave responsibility to understand the difference. I have a little bit over today, a little bit over 58, 59 workers that are outside of the U.S. that are part of our ministry team. They speak seven different languages, and I email them every Monday morning. You say, you know that many languages? The only language I know is Southern English. You pretty well picked that up by now, hadn't you? And, uh, and so I don't try to do I use translators for everything I do. I email things out that translate it out and these kind of things. But we have workers that work with us in trying to get the gospel out to people. A hundred years from today, the only thing that will be important is how we invest our life for Jesus Christ. The other things around us are not going to amount a whole lot. And let's never quit, never give up on getting it done. Amen. Let's stand together. Would you stand with me and look at your Bible? I want to read a couple of verses in the middle of a story that I want to tell you a little bit about this morning. Then I want to preach on the subject. I hope it's what God would have for us this morning. In Mark chapter 5, we find right in the midst, in the first, really the first 20 verses, an interesting story about a man that we call, he's a maniac of Gadaria. This maniac of Gadaria is kind of like if you walk downtown, the way it used to be downtown in some of the areas, and you see these guys that, like I saw last week when I drove through a cold area, sleeping in a door because they didn't have a home. Coat over them, trying to keep warm. The wind chill brought it down 20 degrees where I was, and they was trying to keep warm. That's like this guy. Uh, maybe his life was torn up by liquor, Dave. I don't know. Maybe drugs had got him. But this guy was uncontrollable. They had to put him in a cave. They probably didn't have an institute they could lock him up in. And nobody in that day was concerned much about political correctness. It would be a good thing if we could get rid of some of that in our nation today. And, you know, what happened is this guy had to be literally tied up. The Bible talks about chains, but if you do research on that, there were kind of cords that could be broken. The man would break them and come out, and the people, I'm sure, just soon he'd die, get rid of him. Something happened to him. He met Jesus Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, there's never been a person that Jesus Christ cannot help. You'll never get so low that Jesus cannot reach down and pick you back up. And he met this guy. The guy was, the Bible talks about the demons, the sin that had controlled his life. And he was so captivated by sin that Satan had dispatched a leader to the demons called Legion, a number of them. And very simply, when Jesus encountered him, something happened. This man was saved. He was in his right mind. Now read the verses with me in verse 18. And when he was come to this ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Now, notice the two-word he. The first he refers to this man that had just been saved. Here he was, a man that was... I mean, just minutes ago, he was lost on his way to hell. Now he was clothed, he was in his right mind. And the Bible said this man came to the second he is the Savior, Jesus Christ. And he looked at Jesus and very simply says, Wow, can I be with you? Reasonable request, right? Next verse. How be it, verse 19, Jesus suffered him not. Jesus said, No. I'm not going to let you be with me. But I got something else I want you to do. 
I want you to go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for thee and has had compassion on you. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray this morning that you use the word of God. My heart is full this morning for love for so many people in this building. And God, there are different emotions here. And I pray you, God, help us to lay those aside. And may the word of God of the ministry of the Holy Spirit be that which you would have for us for these minutes. Touch our hearts. I ask you that the commitments and decisions made in this service this morning would result in scores of people coming to Christ and lives being changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Be seated if you would, please. In this passage that I was referring to, there are three different prayers. It's kind of interesting when you look at it. Three different prayers. The first prayer, believe it or not, was prayed by demons. (laughs) Can you imagine that? This legion, speaking on behalf of the demons, prayed the first prayer to Jesus. And you'll find that if you look back in these verses for just a minute at verse 10. Verse 10 says, and he, the he refers back to verse 9, to the legion, to the demons. And he besought him much. He didn't pray one time. He kept praying it. This demon besought Jesus. He besought him much that he would not send them out of the country. You know what this demon was praying for? He was saying, Lord, (laughs) you've cast us out of this man don't put us in hell right now. God, just don't put us in hell right now. Did you know the devil already knows he's lost? I mean, the devil's a loser. He already knows it. The demons know that one day they'll be in hell forever. So very simply, they looked at Jesus and said, Lord, they said, don't put us in hell right now. And you know what? Jesus answered that prayer. Isn't that interesting? Jesus didn't put them off. He said, it was not the consummation of the ages. And Jesus said, okay. You remember the story? The Bible said Jesus told those demons to go where? Into the swine, into the pigs. And when they ran into the pigs, something happened. They ran down the seashore, and they drowned in the Sea of Galilee. And ladies and gentlemen, when they, those pigs drowned, it kind of hurt the pork industry of that area. I mean, somebody said there were over 600. I don't know the amount. But somebody studied this and said maybe 600 or more pigs. I mean... Let's just say the major industry to provide any kind of meat that comes from pigs was in serious trouble. So that necessitated prayer number two. Prayer number two was prayed by the men who owned the swine. They were businessmen. These businessmen looked at their investment, and they said, our investment is gone, the pigs are dead, our business is in trouble. So they came to Jesus, and they prayed prayer number two. You'll find that in verse 17. In verse 17, they, these businessmen, begin to pray him. And very simply, they prayed him to depart out of their coast. Their prayer was something like this. Lord, would you just get out of town? Would you just leave us alone? Would you just get out of town? We're doing better before you got here. Just leave town. The interesting thing to me, I would think that Jesus, you know, being like you and I, with the temperament we've got, he probably said, well, I want my rights. Or maybe I'll stay if I want to. (laughs) Or you can't tell me where to go. But he didn't do that. Very simply, the Lord just said, okay. And he just started walking down the seaside. And I could see him stepping into the boat, fixing to leave to sail to the other side of the sea. And all of a sudden, we find prayer number three. You read prayer number three with me a minute ago. Prayer number three was prayed by the man that had just been saved. And I, I can see him watching Jesus and saying, where is he going? And all of a sudden, he, it became apparent he's going to get in the ship, 
in the boat. He's going to sail to the other side of the sea. And this guy said, man, I've just been saved. He runs down to the seaside, puts his foot in the boat maybe, and looks at him, and he prays prayer number three. He said, Lord, can I be with you? Now, the only one of those three prayers, if you look at them, that is a reasonable prayer that you and I would say is the one that ought to be granted is prayer number three. After all, prayer number one was prayed by the demons. But Jesus said, yes, you've asked me. Yes, he answered that prayer. Prayer number two was prayed by unregenerate men, the best we know, businessmen. And they looked and said, would you get out of town? Jesus didn't hinder. Jesus said, yeah, I'll leave. He started to leave. And all of a sudden, the only prayer that seemed reasonable was prayed by a man that had just been born again. Best I know, there were no Christians in that area. There were no churches in Gadaria. There were no preachers there. The man didn't have a Bible. But then he didn't have any Bible whatsoever. <laughs> Thank God for the work the Gideons are doing, but he didn't have any work, any Bible at all. He didn't have a New Testament. So here's a man that you and I would agree needs to be disciple. Would you not agree with that? I mean, he had just been born again. There was no other Christians. There were no church. There were no Bibles. He walks down with a reasonable request and said, Lord, fix it to hop in the boat. I just want to be with you. And Jesus said, no. The one reasonable prayer that should have been answered, he said, no. Now, when I was in, you know, training Bible college years and years ago, I had a guy teaching theology. And he said this. He said, anytime you read the Bible and you don't understand something or you got a question about it, Write the word why in the margin. And if you keep studying long enough, God will give you an answer to the question. First Bible I had had whys all the way through it. <laughs> I was saying, what, you know, how do I get an answer to that? I put a why next to this verse the first time I read it. Why in the world would Jesus say, no, you cannot be with him? I don't want you to be with me. Now, in the years that have come and gone, I want to give you what I believe is the answer to that question. Why is it that Jesus did not answer his prayer? I believe with all of my heart the reason is because there really is a place called hell. Think that through for a minute. There really is a literal hell. I don't mean a figment of somebody's imagination. There's a hell that's just as real as this building that you're seated in this morning. There's a hell that has occupants in it that are being tormented, according to the Bible, in flames. There's a literal hell. There's a hell that some of us really don't want to think about. But we've had friends and loved ones that have slipped into eternity that we've had questions about their future. And if a person dies without Christ, they slip into an eternal hell separated from God. If there were no hell, why do you tithe? If there were no hell, why do I want to travel to another land and try to train nationals to reach people? Why do you want to, why do you want to give money to missions? If there is no hell, why in the world do you want to teach Sunday school? Hey, brother, there's no hell. What's the deal about reaching young people? Let them have a good time. Forget about it. It's all going to end up in dust anyway. If there is no literal hell, what's it all about anyway? But I want to stand and tell you this morning, my dear friend, just as sure as there's a literal heaven, there's a literal hell. How many of you believe there's a literal heaven? Hold your hand up. A literal heaven. I mean a place where born-again people will spend forever with God. Interesting. Every time I speak to a liberal group, 
I spoke about nine months ago to a group of professors that taught philosophy, and they told me to start with they were unbelievers. And I said, well, okay. And I, I stood up and looked at them. I said, how many of you believe there's a literal heaven? And, you know, I don't care who I speak to. They just about raise their hand and say, yeah, I believe there's a heaven. You know, it's in the heart of man to want to believe that he didn't have an opportunity to spend. But then you can ask them about hell. They want to shut and go the other way on that. I got on a plane after 9-11, and I was coming out of Seattle flying back into Atlanta. I sometimes believe when the rapture comes, you've got to go to Atlanta to get to heaven. I'm not sure. It looks like I go to Atlanta every week somewhere. But I was coming into Atlanta, and it's a long flight. And this was about, you know, what, nine years ago, maybe closer to 10. And I picked up a U.S. News and World Report. And on the front of that cover, U.S. News and World Report, that artists had put a graphic together of a beach scene. And he had depicted as much sin as he could. He had liquor and dope and nudity and all of this there. And then it had the caption on the top of the page. It said, if this is hell, it ain't too bad. Then it invited me to turn to page number 72 and read an article that was written by an Episcopalian theological teacher over in Chicago. And I'm not being detrimental to that movement. That's just who he was. And so I turned to page number 72 and I began to read. And that man said this. He said, there's no such thing as a literal hell in the Bible. He said, hell is a figment of somebody's imagination. Hell is nothing but a vaporous condition. He said, the worst thing hell could be is something that is just a thought in somebody's mind. Then he made this statement. He said, if our preachers in America would just preach what Jesus said, they wouldn't be preaching about hell. And I started laughing aloud. The guy next to me was a businessman, and he looked at me, and he said, <laughs> I said, well, excuse me, I didn't mean to laugh that loud, but this guy wrote a statement in here. It's just absolutely ridiculous. He said, what did he write? And I read in the statement that if our preachers in America would just preach what Jesus said, they wouldn't be preaching about hell. He said, well, I don't know anything about the Bible. He said, I don't even go to church, to be honest. He said, it could be true or not be true. I don't know. I said, well, we've got a long flight. Why don't you take my Bible? It's a red-letter edition of what Jesus said. Let's turn to Matthew, and I'm going to give you a pen. And why don't you underline everything in my Bible? Just read the red. That's what Jesus said. And just underline everything Jesus said about sin, death, punishment, and hell. He said, man, that is, I'd love to do that. I need to know more about that. I said, good. So he started reading, started underlining. It was about 20-some minutes later, and all of a sudden he said, what in the world is that guy talking about? I said, what do you mean? He said, the guy that wrote that article, I thought he taught theology. I said, well, it says he does. He said, that man obviously has never read the Bible. I said, well, what did you find out? He looked at me and he said, I'll tell you what I found out. Jesus said there's fire in hell. He said, I found out Jesus is an extremist. I said, what do you mean an extremist? He said, Jesus said, if your hand offends you, you'd be better to cut your hand off and go through life with only one good hand and die and go to heaven than to keep two hands and die and go to hell. He said he also said that you'd be better to pluck your eye out and throw your eye away and just have one eye so you can die and go to heaven than to have two eyes if that other eye is going to keep you from God so you have to go to hell. He said, I'll tell you what really got me. I said, what is that? He said, Jesus said that I ought not to fear somebody that can kill my body. I better fear somebody that can not only take care of the body but can put it in hell forever and forever and forever. I had the privilege of leading that man to Christ before we got to Atlanta. That was a glorious thing, and I thank God for that. That man, the rest of the trip, 
began to go through the Bible. I gave him my Bible so he could continue to study what Jesus said. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you, just as sure as this Bible teaches that there's a literal heaven, it also teaches there's a literal hell. And Jesus turned to this man and said, Wait a minute. Great prayer. I'm glad you want to be with me. I'm glad you want to grow in grace. He said, well, wait a minute. There's something urgent. What is it? I want you to go home to your friends. They're not saved. I want you to go home to your family. And I want you to tell them what great things God has done for thee and has had compassion on thee. I was in Oregon holding a unity crusade with 17 churches. And this was about six months after 9-11 years ago. And somebody in the church had a, they did some work for ABC affiliate downtown. And they invited me to come down doing that crusade. And, and on television, they want to talk about the crusade. I was a young lady, very nice, and she was interviewing me. And she looked at me right in the middle of the interview and she just said, what's so bad about hell? I mean, right out of the blue. Tell me if you would, what's so bad about hell? I smiled and looked at her and gave her the best answer I thought I could give, but it made me begin to think about it. So I'm going to ask you that question. What difference does it make if your family goes to hell? What difference does it make if this whole city goes to hell? What difference does it make if teenagers die and go to hell? So what? What's so bad about hell? There's no water in hell. Absolutely no water in hell. Can you imagine that? There are no oceans in hell. There are no streams in hell. There are no rivers in hell. There's no rain in hell. There's no dew in hell. There's not enough moisture in hell that if one occupant in hell this morning were to take all the moisture in hell and hold it at the end of his fingertip, there's not enough moisture to form one drop that gravity could drop to the ground. If my friends and my loved ones die and go to hell, that's the kind of hell they're going to be in. Wait a minute. There's no mountains in hell. How many like mountains? Man, I kind of like mountains. June and I travel once in a while, and you get you see different kind of mountains, whether they're out west on the east coast or wherever they may be. And I love mountains. Mountains are nice. There aren't any mountains in hell. There are no trees in hell. You have a beautiful season in the fall when you look at the leaves color. But wait a minute. It's not that there's just no leaves that people can enjoy in hell. There are no trees in hell. On our honeymoon, I was coming across an area of the Blue Ridge Parkway. <laughs> and I had one of these old-fashioned cameras, and the best we could do at that time, you know. And all of a sudden, I'm driving down the road, trying to keep from running off the road, you know, over the side of a mountain. And June begins to stop. Man, I thought she had a heart attack or something. I didn't know what was going on. I stopped. She said, look at that tree. I mean, I had to take a picture of that tree. And, you know, it's kind of funny down through the years. I've gone to different countries. In India, I sent a copy last January of a tree that I took a picture of there. Beautiful tree. I like, how many of you like trees? Trees are just enormous. There aren't any trees in hell. If your loved ones and friends die and go to hell, they'll be separate. There are no trees in hell. There are no leaves in hell. There are no flowers in hell. There's no music in hell. You ever thought about this? There's no positive emotions in hell. You deal with somebody and talk to somebody about Christ, and they say, well, I'm going to go to hell, but I'll be with my friends. Their friends may be in hell, but there won't be any friendship in hell. There's not one positive emotion in hell. There's only negative emotion, anger, bitterness, disgust. No positive emotions. There's no hope in hell. 
There's no love in hell. There's no joy in hell. There are no positive emotions in hell. There are no babies in hell. Think this through for just a minute. What is one good thing in hell? Ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing good in hell whatsoever. Maybe one of the bad things about hell is a place of outer darkness. Jesus talked about that, outer darkness. You know what outer darkness is? It's impossible for you and I to really understand it. But if I were to put you at the front of this auditorium in kind of a vaporous condition where that you did not know whether you were floating, I mean, your eyes are wide open, but you can't perceive or see anything. And you reach forward trying to touch something, but you're in a kind of a simulated position where there's nothing to put your hand on to get relevance to your physical condition. You don't know whether you're floating or descending or going to the left or right, or maybe are you upside down or straight up? The nearest word that we've got in the English language to outer darkness is one word with four letters in it. The word is lost. Lost. If our friends and relatives, the people that live in these houses up and down your street, the people you work with, these people that are homeless, these people that need Christ, lives that are destroyed, if they die and go to hell, it's going to be much worse than hell than it's ever been here. They're going to be separated from all that's good forever. Somebody said, well, the worst thing about hell is how long you'll be there. I've had so many people to ask me. It's a good question. How long is hell? Did you know the same adjectives and adverbs that describe how long heaven is talk about how long hell is? I mean, when the Bible talks about forever and forever, you talk about heaven, praise God, I'm going to be with God forever. We sing about it. We clap and we praise God about it. But wait a minute. The people that go to hell have the same adjectives and adverbs that talk about how long hell's going to be. So as long as you're going to be in heaven, if your loved ones and friends, no wonder Jesus sent him. If your loved ones and friends die without Christ, as long as you're in heaven, they're going to be in hell separated from God. Philosophers have written about it. Different people have written different treatises about it. Even unbelievers trying to discover how long is eternal? How long is forever? Somebody wrote this. and They said if you were to drive a star on the earth and then take a string and put it on that star and string it 93 million miles you got to the sun and drive a star on the sun and anchor it there. Then walk back 93 million miles and recruit an ant and get that ant to take one grain of sand and pick one grain of sand, walk 93 million miles to the sun and deposit grain of sand number one. Turn around at an ant's pace 93 million miles back, pick up grain of sand number two. Make the round trip, grain of sand number three. Round trip again, grain of sand number four. And that ant would keep at it until he had taken every grain of sand one at a time off of every desert on this earth, every seashore, out from under the bottom of every ocean, out of every soil composite. And one grain of sand at a time had taken it up and deposited it on the sun and backed off and looked at it and then turned around and reversed himself and brought it all back and put it back one grain of sand at a time exactly where he had taken it originally that when that ant had finished his task, eternity would have just begun. Forever and forever and forever and forever. I had the privilege of not only being in this church, but earlier in the ministry of founding a church in Columbia, South Carolina. Early in my ministry, when I was forward to evangelism, I held a meeting in a church, Grace Baptist Church. 
we had a good meeting. I started Sunday night. While I was pastoring, I preached Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. And we had a pretty good group of people that were there. And I had people say it was a good meeting. I came back and I told my secretary the next morning, I said, listen, I'm a little bit behind and uh, don't bother me unless it's an emergency. I, I need to get some things done. She said, okay. About an hour later, she buzzed me. She said, preacher, I think you need to talk to a lady. She's called in and said she needs to talk to you. And I picked the phone up. I said, what can I do for you? She said, I'm a member of the church, Grace Baptist, where you held a meeting. I said, yeah, I remember you. She said, there's somebody in the hospital downtown named Ray Russell. You need to go visit that man called Ray Russell. I said, why is that? She said, well, he's not saved. And said, I know that you do what you can to try to help people to get saved. Would you go visit him? I said, I'll do it just as soon as I catch up things. She said, you don't understand. This man's in the burn unit. He's almost dead. He should already be dead. He's unsaved. You need to see him as soon as you can. I said, I'll go right now. I shut my work up and I headed downtown. I did not know what I'm going to tell you now. Ray Russell was called the most wicked man in that county. When he saw the revival flyers put out that our ministry had sent in about the meeting, he printed what he called some anti-revival flyers. The anti-revival flyers, he put them around town, it very simply says, to all the men of this town, if you won't go hear the preacher preach and you'll come to the bar, I'll buy your first drink of liquor when you get there. And they tell me he had a pretty good crowd at the bar. So every night I was preaching, he was at the bar laughing at what we was doing. Last night there, Ray Russell got in a drunken stupor celebrating he had been able to pull us off for four days. A woman rode home in the car with him, and she stayed out in the car, and he, in a drunken stupor, walked inside his trailer. And he fell out on the couch, and he was asleep. She waited a few minutes, popped the trunk of the car, and pulled out a five-gallon can of gasoline, walked in and began to pour circles of gasoline around his body. She poured a trail outside, struck a match, and threw it on it, and the fire began to burn to the inside and burned around the man's body. They say by the time he was awakened from the pain, he could not escape from the circle of fire. They came down and pulled him out. They put him in the back of a police car. I read the article later. She began to stand up and call back at the trailer, Go to hell, Ray Russell, go to hell. And he almost did. I didn't know that story. I walked in the hospital, and they looked at me and said, Preacher, you don't want to visit him. I said, Why is that? They said, It's the stench and what you see. He said, He's almost dead anyway. I said, But, ma'am, he needs to get saved before he dies. And they said, Well, and they put all of this different paraphernalia on so the bacteria is kept down, that kind of thing. And I walked in, and he was laying on a bed like this, and both hands just up. It looked like, actually, it wasn't a man. It looked like a fax, a, a, a wax figurine. His part of his ears were melted, his nose, and of course, eyebrows gone, and one of his lungs had collapsed and had a tube, and one of his eyes had even burnt out. Hideous sight, the smell was just very, very bad. And I looked at him and asked God for grace, and I went over and got right on top of him where that one eye could see me, and I looked down, and I said, Ray, my name is David Wood, and I've come to tell you how to become a Christian so you can go to heaven when you die, because you're going to die soon. He began to shake a little bit. I didn't know why then. I do now. He knew who I was. I didn't even ask him, could I talk to him? I said, there are four things you need to know in order to be saved. Number one, you need to know you're a sinner. Ray, you need to be willing to tell God, God, I agree with you. I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you. You need to say, God, I recognize that my sin deserves hell. And if I die without you, my just punishment is going to be forever in a place called hell. 
But number three, Ray, I want you to know Jesus loved you enough to die on the cross and pay the penalty for all of your sin, regardless of what you've done. Jesus has already taken all of your sin upon him, and he died in your place. And Ray, if you'll believe that and put your faith in Christ and accept him, he'll save you this minute. Then I said, I want you to pray with me. I didn't even ask him, would he be saved? I just said, would you pray? And I said, dear God, and that man began to gurgle, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. And he said, I know. I know. And I thought, this man, even though he suffered, even though he thinks he suffered worse than he'll ever suffer, this man's going to turn Jesus down. While I was thinking those thoughts, he began to pray by himself. I wish you could have heard the prayer, God, I've been so wicked. I don't see anybody could love me. But if you love me enough to die for me like that, Lord, I want to receive Christ as my Savior. And that man was gloriously born into the family of God laying on that bed. I began to calm him the best I could. I began to give him as much assurance and hope as I could. Something that would help him, not only to know he's going to heaven, but help him to find the grace he needed from God to go through what he had to face between that time. I'm glad to tell you he didn't die that day. It was 37 days later. I was in his hospital room for most of those 37 days because he gave invitation to the same men to come to the hospital room. He said, I want you to come to the hospital room and see me before I die. I bought your liquor. I want you to come to the hospital room and see me before I die. I had the privilege of seeing some 60 to 70 men, grown men, receive Christ as Savior in that hospital room. Because a man that had never encountered this verse in the Bible obeyed this verse. Jesus, what is it? <laughs> Lord, I'm sure glad I'm saved. Wow, this is exciting. Lord, <laughs> I'm going to be with you. Not right now. Later you're going to be with me forever. But i got a supreme task for you. What is it, Lord? I want you to go home to your friends. And I want you to tell every one of them what great things God has done for you and loved you enough to have compassion on you.